I'm not going to ask how many of you peek while Pastor Brent's praying. <laughs> and I'm making my way up here. Oh, my goodness. You forget things. I'm running over here. I'm running back there. I'm doing things all over the place. But you're all in prayer. I know. Nobody's looking. <laughs> oh, man. This is the fifth Sunday of the month. We get four in a year. And on the fifth Sunday of each of those months, that have them, we have the little ones in with us. And I wish I could remember that before I begin preparing my sermon for that week. But I didn't. And so we're just continuing in the book of Mark, and um, it's not the uh, optimal kind of message, uh, especially for little ones, but uh, it's certainly uh, much more tame than what I can do and have done in the past. So uh, I guess that all, all that is to say is caveat emptor, which means buyer beware. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We're picking up now in chapter 10, which is where we left off a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to read chapter 10, verse 1. Rising up, Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Today in our world of controversy, Controversy is to be shunned, apparently, by all means. Apparently, the psychosocial health of the human mind has grown so fragile that thoughtful challenge that universities establish safe zones, if you're not aware of those, they establish safe zones for their adult students who somehow just cannot seem to cope with the narrative that in any way, shape, or form happens to run contrary to what has been strategically infused into their non-thinking little minds from preschool through college. UCL, UCLA law professor Eugene Volek says this, I think the problem is they're trying to use this word safe, which conveys the image of a violent attack, and turning it into safe from ideas and statements we find offensive. There's no right to be safe from that. That's directly contrary to what universities are all about. And then renowned attorney Alan Dershowitz, who you may remember him from the O.J. Simpson trial, but he is a professor of Harvard Law. He writes... They want, referring to the students, they want complete control over their personal lives, but they want mommy and daddy dean, meaning the dean of students, to please give them a safe place to protect them from ideas that maybe are insensitive, maybe will make them think. Well, in response to a note that Yale faculty by the name of Erica Christakis uh, sent out a note concerning an edict that Yale had put out during the uh, Halloween uh, observance. And the letter that Yale sent out was basically giving a list of types of costumes that one could not wear. Well, faculty Erica Christakis wrote a letter saying basically how ridiculous that was. Samantha Harris, and by the way, she was because of the uproar and the protest she was asked to resign. 
Samantha Harris, who's an attorney and a director of police research for the Foundation of Individual Rights and Education, described Yale lecturer Erica Christakis' note to students as a thoughtfully worded email that invited open intellectual dialogue. Demanding that someone step down for expressing an opinion for which you disagree is patently illiberal. The idea that people have the right to absolute emotional comfort at all times is very troubling, she said, and it's anti-intellectual. And once again, back to Professor Volokh, who I quoted at the outset. This is destructive to the university as a place for debate and the pursuit of truth. If we allow this to happen as citizens, as alumni, the results will be very bad for higher education and for the country. What I would say to people on the left, I would remind them that so many of the movements they hold dear got where they got because of free speech, like the civil rights movement. The more you try to insulate yourself from contrary ideas, the weaker your arguments are going to be. Well, Jesus arrives at a new location, and Jesus begins teaching the crowds once again, Remember the narrative previously that we discussed in the past recent weeks in Mark was a stern warning from Jesus about the seriousness of stumbling the little ones, of stumbling the the emotionally and truly mentally immature. And it doesn't have to necessarily apply only to chronological age. Well, it's interesting, I think, to see that while Jesus was controversial at best and angering at most, he still drew the crowds. And as we have seen every step of the way, the Pharisees, who were his arch rivals, the religious ne'er-do-wells of the day, the Pharisees wanted to establish their own safe zone, which meant they wanted Jesus silenced. Jesus' ideas were contrary to theirs, and being contrary to theirs makes them insecure, and the insecure are always fearful. When I was writing for the Sentinel many years ago, there was another individual who wrote in the uh, Sentinel Weekly, actually probably several times a week, who was on the opposite end of the political, social, uh, truth spectrum as I was, and I tried for many, many years to get the gentleman out to lunch with me, just to sit down and chat, just to get to know each other, just to, you know, hopefully have lively discussion and debate. He would never take me up on it. And I tried even years after I was gone, because I'd bump into him in town and everything else, never take me up on it. Well, controversial as Jesus was to the status quo of the world of the Pharisees, some people were listening And that was threatening because Jesus' words and even his very presence were always convicting and incapacitating, diminishing the power of the Pharisees over the people who were drawn to the person and drawn to the presence of the one called Emmanuel, God with us. Well, no sooner does Jesus begin to teach, the Pharisees once again seek to undermine him. And so in verse 2 of Mark 10, some Pharisees want to test Jesus. And they came up to him and asked him if it was right for a man to divorce his wife. Now, if you remember back in chapter 8, a different group of Pharisees, but same, of course, ideology and, and general beliefs and all, they brought another bogus question 
before Jesus, not looking for an answer, but simply hoping to trap him in something that they could latch onto and thus charge him with some kind of a crime. For the Pharisees, this was standard operating procedure. And what is helpful to know is that the Pharisees, even amongst themselves, couldn't even agree on the issue of divorce. You see, in Jesus' day, there were, there were two influential schools of thought, two influential rabbis by the names of Hillel and Shammai. And they constituted basically what would be called the two schools of rabbinical thought on basically everything in Scripture. And not unlike today, you had one on one side of the spectrum and one on the other. Rabbi Hillel was the more liberal of the two, and Rabbi Shammai the more conservative. And between them, both agreed that divorce was permissible, but the grounds for divorce were hotly disputed. And so remember now, the Bible at this time is the Old Testament. And so we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where we read, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he shall write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand, and send her out from his house. Now the controversy lays in the interpretation of the key phrase here, he has found some indecency in her. The rabbi Shammai believed that this referred to a moral violation of the law, specifically adultery. Remember, he was the more conservative of the two. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, believed it meant that virtually anything And I do mean truly anything a husband found dissatisfying was grounds enough for divorce. So if your woman burned the matzah for dinner, in all seriousness, you could divorce her. But both schools agreed that, again, divorce in general or as a concept was permissible and that only the man had the prerogative to divorce. A woman could never divorce her husband. So these two warring groups now come together and they put forth this question to Jesus, hoping yet again to trap him, to get him in trouble with the civil authorities, that is the magistrates who had the authority to remove him from society and thus creating an ancient safe zone. And it's probably not coincidental that the location of Jesus at this time happens to be in the area that is under the control of the ruler Herod Antipas. And why is that significant? Well, it was Herod Antipas who John the Baptist made best friends with, I say sarcastically, telling Herod that he was violating the law of God by marrying his brother's wife. And you could say that John lost his head over the little shout-out to the corrupt king. So here now is Jesus. He's in Herod's jurisdiction when the Pharisees politically bade him concerning this very issue that got John beheaded. The Pharisees asked if it was right for a man to divorce his wife, and Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 3, Jesus says, well, what did Moses command you? Without blinking, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. You see, now, aha, Deuteronomy 24, we got this one, we're all over it. 
But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And Jesus could have stopped there. He could have left it right where it was. And if he had, he would have answered their question in a manner of speaking. But it also would have been a very incomplete answer, leaving everyone of all following generations, which includes us, having different ideas about the issue, leading one to a very casual view of divorce and one which favors men exclusively. So Jesus wants to clarify the answer for our benefit. And remembering the motive for the question in the first place, had Jesus left it there, the Pharisees would have nothing against him. Their trap would have failed. But Jesus risks it all in expanding on what Moses decreed. Yeah, 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 okay, right, you're right. Moses indeed did make such a command, and he did do it. In fact, with God's approval. But then Matthew includes Jesus' remark of this same confrontation. Jesus saying, but from the beginning, it was not so. It was never what God intended. No, it was quite because man is so corrupt and man is so conniving and so creatively sinful that that he that left with just the command, do not get divorced, people would still find a way to circumvent God's ideal. And don't forget, the woman, again, could never divorce her husband. And so thus divorcing their wives, with the decree as it stands in their understanding that A man could divorce their wives for any and every and no reason, at least according to Rabbi Hillel. The wife, you see, had no protection. The wife had no provision. And the wife had no recourse whatsoever. And on top of that, she was marked as an untouchable, meaning that she was destined now to remain single for the rest of her life. So Jesus says to them, Yeah, yeah, Moses did indeed issue a certificate of divorce and said to send her away. Well, how does that help anything? Well, the writ, you see, of certificate of divorce, first of all, had to delineate the reason for the divorce, which, barring infidelity, meaning adultery, the certificate of divorce became proof of the remarriageability of the woman. So you see, that's a big deal. So the certificate of divorce was permitted by God as an act of mercy towards the woman because of man's wickedness. I'm going to come back to this. So Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. We pick up verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God, we hear this in the marriage ceremony today, and what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder, or more popularly, let no man separate. So you see, any 
notion of a so-called legitimate divorce was only ever a divine concession, not an orchestrated plan. So divorce for any reason was never God's intent and certainly never his ideal. But allowing the decree of divorce, God was not endorsing, he was not desiring, nor was he encouraging divorce. But again, God knows the heart of man. And what the church of Jesus Christ seems to have lost sight of through the centuries is that the intended permanence of marriage is a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance means it is a law. It is a command that God gave at the time of creation, meaning it was already in place before sin ever entered the world. It was given at the moment of creation, not after the fall of man, as we call it, when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God. You see, there are laws that were implemented after the fall that were since then abrogated. The scriptures are clear on which ones those are. But a creation ordinance is intact for all time and eternity into perpetuity. This is what we read in Genesis 2, verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become uncleavable. They shall become one flesh. Now, if we understand then the entire package of instruction regarding divorce, instead of just cherry-picking verses here and there, It's easy to understand what might seem like God's inflexibility on the subject. And I'm thinking of one of the very last things that God says to us before the 400 years of silence between the ending of the Old Testament and now the picking up in the New Testament with the birth of Christ. There were four centuries of silence. No prophecies, no word from God, no miracles, nothing. There was silence for four centuries. And the last thing that God says to mankind is found in the last book of the Old Testament called Malachi. To give a little bit of context there, in chapter 1, The Lord begins a very uncomfortable dressing down of his people. Malachi is not a comfortable book. It is God, up close and personal, disciplining, because he disciplines those whom he loves for the purpose of drawing them back. And so he's dressing down his people, and God begins, not surprisingly, with the priests of Israel who have been teaching error to God's people. (laughs) Stop me if you've heard that one. And God says 
to the priests who are teaching error, you've despised me. And true to human temperament, they act clueless, having the effrontery to question how. How have we despised you, O Lord? And what follows for most of the rest of the book is God listing the ways in which they were despising him and the consequent dire circumstances which were following them because of it. When we read the four short chapters of Malachi, we see that God was bringing unbearable circumstances of life upon his people in order to bring them back to himself. And we would do well to note everything in these four chapters because they parallel our situation right now in this country whose motto is, in God we trust. Which is, frankly, a national blasphemy. It couldn't be further from the truth. Well, chapter 2 then moves into more specific of their lives' failings. In chapter 2, verse 7, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you lying priests, or pastors, you put in there pastors, because that's the context of our day, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. The pastors were not teaching the Lord's words. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in the instruction. Picking and choosing, staying in the positive feel-good stuff, and avoiding the hard truths of God's Word. Candidly, this would have made a great speech at both of the conventions of the past couple of weeks. As the list continues, the Lord narrows in on a particularly odious violation of God's best for mankind. Verse 13, Malachi 2. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They were still hyper-religious, but God was not impressed. And God was not pleased. And yet you say, again, for what reason? It's because the Lord has been a witness between you. Between you and the wife of your youth. Against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, by contract, by promise. Didn't he make them one, united in body and spirit? And why did he make them one? Because he wanted them to have godly offspring. Boy, that's loaded, but no time here. So guard your spirit and do not break faith 
with the wife of your youth. Here it is. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And the thought ends very abruptly. The disciples, back to Mark, get Jesus alone, and they continue the discussion. Verse 10. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. The this we're talking about is the question that the Pharisees posed about, is it permissible to divorce someone? And again, Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, if we are astute here, the logical progression of the Lord's view of divorce emerges. God hates divorce. Any and all divorce. No exceptions. Now, don't confuse that with the concession to allowing divorce in certain circumstances. But the fact, remember from the beginning, it was not so. God hates divorce. And why? It is due to eternal theological reasons. Because marriage has always been grounded, the idea of marriage, the institution, as we call it, of marriage, the layout that God mapped out for marriage has always been grounded in God's own unique relationship to his bride, the church. In a New Testament context, Paul spells this out more clearly to the Ephesian church, beginning in chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be submissive or be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. You might be screaming here and squirming. and But wait, there's more. Husbands, love your wives. I love her. I told her once the day we were married, and she said, you know, why do I got to keep repeating it throughout the years? And I told you once and I meant it. Husbands, love your wives just as, putos, even as, in the same manner. Woo! What? As Christ loved and loves his bride, the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for his bride, the church, so that he might sanctify her, that is, separate her to holiness, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself his bride, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
husbands. That is how we are supposed to love our wives. This answers so many questions regarding our present day our present day degrading of society not to mention our pathetically inept defense of marriage the redesign of marriage opening it up to anyone who wants to marry anyone is blasphemous It is an affront to the holiness and to the very character of God and deletes his marvelous plan for mankind. So here in brief is a cogent response to this whole issue. When a couple divorces for whatever reason, it diminishes the divine message that God in Christ has a unique and binding relationship with his bride, the church. And isn't that a good thing for us? Or we would have been divorced and sent away a long time ago. Hebrews 13, the writer says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators. Boy, that is such a broad spectrum, but again, that's beyond the purview of the message this morning. And adulterers God will judge, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, my bride, nor will I ever forsake you, my bride. And since Jesus will never divorce his bride, the church. And the husband in any marriage represents Jesus. That husband is never to leave his bride, his wife. Jesus loves his bride, the church, so much that he gave himself up for his bride's sake. He sacrificed his personal health, his personal well-being, his personal status and stature as God in heaven to become Emmanuel, God with us. He did it for his bride's sake. And that is how we husbands are commanded to act toward our wives. The male is a symbol of Christ. Let me underscore that. The male in the marriage is a symbol of Christ. The female, a symbol of his bride, which is the church. So a marriage between a male and a male or a female and a female is a corruption of the divine picture and divine plan of his relationship to his bride. And I would also add, as is divorce. Remembering the concession. Instead, when the whole onslaught of the homosexual marriage was building for two decades at least, all I ever heard from Christians in so-called defense of marriage was, well, the Bible says blah, blah, blah. 
And centuries of tradition says, blah, 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 and marriage is holy, blah, blah, blah. In fact, it's so holy that Christians dump their wives or their husbands at pretty much the same rate as those who have no faith whatsoever. And the most theological the defense of marriage ever became was haphazardly mentioning that God created a man and a woman and they were to be married, hence the norm of one man to one woman, which obviously is absolutely true. But marriage is so much more than that. In marriage, what Ephesians 5 tells us is this. The man equals Jesus. The bride equals the church. It does not matter if it is a Christian marriage or not. That is God's plan for marriage, period. That is what God planned. That is what he ordained. That is what he made holy. And the man is to love the woman as Christ loved the church. And the woman is to respect and submit to the man as the church submits to Christ. And while at first blush, that is offensive in our gender-impaired, sin-infused culture. When the whole story is told the way it is presented biblically, even a feminist can find it desirable. I have in my hands an ancient, well, near-ancient manuscript by some guy named Bill Kripe for sociology, March 12th, 1976. Hey, the title of my paper, this was at Secular College, okay? The title of my paper, I was about a year and a half old in the Lord too at the time, <laughs> is the role of woman in marriage. It gets better. The teacher, Miss Ellen Hamner, was a feminist of feminists of the day. Wearing her pantsuits, which was pretty radical back then. She probably smoked Virginia Slims, I think. The official cigarette of the feminist movement, I guess. And I thought, well, this could be fun. And I didn't write it. To be a smart aleck, I wrote it precisely to represent what I just said. That there is only ever a caricature out there of what real marriage is supposed to be. And the real role of the man and the woman. And so this is merely an expose of that. I did not expect to get a very good grade on it. Until I got all of a sudden to page 5. Here's what page five starts with. Now, unfortunately, there are those, it's hard to read. This is done on a, are you ready? You'll have to explain this to someone sitting next to you. It's done on a typewriter, okay? And a, and a bad one at that with a bad ribbon, I think. Now, I've got to get the light just on it, man. The paper's yellow, everything. Now, unfortunately, there are those pagans who go by the name of Christian, <laughs> I crack up reading myself, sorry. <laughs> Who love to use Scripture out of context. 
particularly now in a day when male chauvinism is just as strong as women's liberation. Insecure males, totally ignorant of the doctrine of our Lord, take bits of scripture here and there and completely tip the scales to the opposite side of women's liberation. They are those who use scripture to rationalize or justify a tyrannical, dictatorial means of running a family. But as we read on in Ephesians, we find some very important qualifying statements to the head of the household. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This single verse brings the scale back into balance and at once we see the whole concept. And I went on to explain practically what that means. And I went on to explain that if a woman, I don't care who they are, ever truly understood the biblical view, and if the man was actually striving to love their wives as Christ loved the church, submission to that man would never be an issue or a problem. They would be glad to do it, being loved out of their socks. I got to the last page. I thought, she wrote a big stuff at the bottom here. Oh, but wait, there's an A on the paper. This is an excellent paper. You have great potential as a writer and a thinker. I know, right? I think you will do well in anything you try. I expect great things from you, Ellen Hamner. Now... I'm not, that truly, that's not to tout me, okay? It is to say that when presented with the truth of God's word on balance, it's not the woman. I told you to submit to me, and I meant submit to me. My, get me my beer and my sandals. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like foghorn leghorn. I say, I say now. Oh, where were we? It doesn't matter. Throw it away. (laughs) So you see, God hates divorce. And only because of the hardness of man's heart does God permit divorce for adultery, which is fornication, and also for desertion, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But, 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 but. Even in those situations, he still hopes for reconciliation where possible, and he still promises to give strength for forgiveness when requested. So just because there seems to be an option for divorce, we must all remember that the option was granted because of the hardness of man's heart, not because it was ever God's perfect will. This means that the Christian couple should first and foremost seek to fix the marriage by diligent pursuit of God's grace rather than, as I experience all too common, looking for what the loopholes are in the marriage covenant. And can I somehow finagle this to get one of those exceptions made for me? Go ahead and put that picture up, Lib. Finish with a little story. As you know, Barb's in Nicaragua. And 
we have this habit of, you know, sticking notes and stuff in her suitcase and that she'll find over time while she's gone. And she does, who knows what she's going to do. And I had no idea this time. So I woke up on, uh, I think, Friday morning or Saturday morning. I have a text message with a screenshot of her compass on her phone with an azimuth, okay, meaning the arrow is pointing to 176 degrees. And then there's coordinates at the bottom. And all it said was a treasure hunt. Well, for our anniversary last month, Barb bought me a metal detector. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on. I promise you will not see me at Old Orchard Beach, okay, wearing a Speedo. (laughs) Yeah, just get that out of your mind. You'll need counseling. Call Brent for therapy this week. Okay, it is in fact to relic hunt being in this historical area that we are to find things from the Revolutionary War. So, okay, so you see, we made it sound important instead of just, (laughs) so here it is. So I'm like, well, wow, this is okay, this is clever. So anyway, um, I'm going to have to teach Barb a few things about using a compass more accurately. Uh, I wasn't having much success having no starting point. At any rate, yesterday, with a little hint from Barb, I went out with my metal detector, and it was going, or whatever it does. And I took my little garden claw, and I scraped away the topsoil and the dirt, and this is what I found. It says something like, why, you are more precious than silver and gold, and it says forever for always, no matter what, on our ceiling, in our bedroom, above our bed, is stenciled forever, for always, no matter what. It is the first thing we see in the morning, and it's the last thing we see when we go to bed at night. Believe me when I tell you, I'm not holding us up as a perfect marriage. She is the perfect wife. But I am still striving, and that is the key, striving to love her as Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her. And when you just think for a moment of the ramifications today on our nation, on our culture, on our society, at the absolute dissolution of traditional marriage and traditional family, you can understand why this passage immediately comes right on the heels of it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you cast into the sea than to stumble one of these little ones. Isn't he an incredible God? It's almost like he knew the end from the beginning. (laughs) Go figure, huh? Let me have you stand. Mr. Dunbar, I believe you're closing us out this morning. Is that true? (laughs) <laughs> I guess it is. I'm not going to try to talk that. Very good message, Pastor. Thank you. Father God, we thank you for uh, Pastor Precious. Thank you, Lord. Uh, we'd ask that you would just let the uh, message soak in this week in Jesus' name.